Well, hey, good morning. Man, look at you. This look great today. Hope you had a great week. Uh, this is Valentine's Day week. You know, I spared no expense. Took my wife out to the Bobcats game. Be teaching a class later this week on romancing your marriage. You'll want to be... <laughs> there are still plenty of seats available. <laughs> All right, I'm having fun now. So, uh, today what we're going to do tonight, today, we're going to be looking at rookie mistakes. This, uh, this talk started in the Metrodome in Minneapolis in November of this past year. But Marcy and I and some friends were watching the Philadelphia Eagles play the Minnesota Vikings. My wife is from Minnesota, and uh, so we've kind of hung with the Vikings, taking our depression medicine along the way. And uh, so we're there in the Metrodome, and uh, you're going to see a clip of what happened at the beginning of the second half. Now, the Vikings were behind. No surprise there, but nevertheless... uh, So they brought in, to receive the second-half kickoff, Adrian Peterson. Now, Adrian Peterson was drafted seventh all around, and he would have been higher if he wouldn't have hurt his shoulder in his senior year in college. He became the rookie of the year in the NFL. He was the MVP of the Pro Bowl. And as a rookie, set the single-game rushing record, rushing for 296 yards in one game. So like a pretty good year. Now you got to figure this, this guy has spent his entire life from childhood on a football field. And so he's brought in at the beginning of the second half to catch the kickoff. And let's have a look and see what happens. And Akers gets this second half underway, kicking it away from Peterson. And... Peterson feels it and goes out of bounds at the one-yard line. Try to bust one and get out of real danger. And it's the first handoff to the fullback, Tony Richardson. And he gets about a one. It'll be second down and nine. And Holcomb throwing from the end zone and has to throw it away. Had nowhere to go with it. Third and nine, and Chester Taylor has checked in the game. And Taylor nearly tackled in the end zone, works his way out to the one. And it's got to be a little shorter snap for him. Eagles looking in great field position. Good pressure by Philadelphia. Reno Mahe at the Viking 45. And he is dragged down. So good coverage by the Minnesota Vikings. So if you know anything about football, you know that on a kickoff, if it goes into the end zone, you get the ball at the 20-yard line. If the kicker kicks it out of bounds, you get the ball at the 40-yard line. And after all of his experience, Adrian Peterson catches the ball on the one-half-yard line and steps out of bounds. I was watching that. I thought, rookie mistake. Except it isn't like me playing football. It's like he spent his whole life on a football field. How could he have missed that? So then I started thinking about other situations. In 1995, 30 executives of Disney 
the great theme park company in the United States, met in Aspen, Colorado at a retreat and decided that they were going to start a second theme park to, to augment Disneyland in Los Angeles. Six years later, in 2001, they opened California Adventure at a cost of $1 billion. But it just never caught on. Among their 11 parks, the attendance for California Adventure languished at number nine. It only had about 40% of the visitors of Disneyland itself. And so now they've met again and decided this last year that they were going to enter into a six-year renovation of California Adventure at a price of $1.1 billion. When asked, why don't you enjoy California Adventure as much as Disneyland, the number one response was, I don't get any emotional connection with California Adventure like I do Disneyland. Well, you see, Disney doesn't sell fun. They sell innocence. An answer to the longing that's part of the fallen heart of every person. And somehow in the designing of a billion-dollar park, they missed it. Now, at Christmas time, there were two large retail companies. If I told you their names, you'd know them. I, virtually everybody in here would know them. They had CEOs that decided that in order to increase their gross margin of profit, here was their strategy. We're going to lay off the bulk of our full-time employees and replace them with part-time employees. Now, catch this. In some industries, that would work on a purely business level. But not if the employee has to have a body of knowledge. No part-time employee has a vested interest in gaining a large body of knowledge when they're just going to earn part-time money on part-time work. But both of these industries needed their employees, not only needed, advertised to the nation that you could walk into their store and their employees could help you, except they couldn't. And the result was a nosedive in their stock, a loss of money through the Christmas season, and heads started to roll. So I started thinking about Adrian Peterson and Disney, these retail stores, and me. So let's look at the uh, big idea. Because here's where I noticed. After most of the significant surges of growth in my life, I realized that what I needed had been there in front of me for a long time. I missed it because I didn't see what was obvious. What blinded me? What sabotage? Sabotage is stealth. It is missing the obvious or losing something I value because of an enemy seen too late. My dreams deserve the safety of lighthouse vigilance. Rookie mistakes give up ground unnecessarily. At the heart of rookie mistakes is deleting, ignoring, or sabotaging, or submerging data. 
It's a loss of perspective. It's getting myopic where I see less and less and less of the reality around me. Now, why does this matter? Because you have dreams and you have goals. And some of you will find out too late that those dreams and goals were unnecessarily sabotaged by rookie mistakes that could have been avoided. And we'll look at that today. The second reason it matters is for some of us here in this room, we have already experienced loss because of rookie mistakes, some of us catastrophic loss. And Christ has an answer for that. So let's have a look quickly at uh, six rookie mistakes and why we miss the obvious. Now, I want to catch you up right at the beginning. There's no way to avoid any of these six. All six of the things we're going to look at real briefly are things that everyone in this room will probably experience in your life. So the, the solution isn't, well, I'm going to try to just avoid that. The fact is, if you're just going to be living a normal life, all six of these things are going to show up somewhere in your life sometime. So here are why we miss the obvious, the basis of rookie mistakes. Number one, temperament. Uh, it doesn't really matter what kind of testing you use. Use the disc task uh, there's uh, an old temperament model that there are clerics, sanguines, melancholy, and phlegmatics. Uh, really, it all kind of shows up that you and I have different, different temperaments. We come from different paradigms. We look, they affect how we look at reality. So let's look at guy, one of the guys in the New Testament. His name was Paul. And uh, we pick him up in Acts chapter 15. Now, Paul said of himself, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the least of all saints. He said, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. If anybody understood mercy, it was Paul. Because people were dead because of him. If you've ever lived a part of your life and said, you know, I wish I could undo something that I've done, that's where Paul came from. Because once he realized he was wrong, he realized there were people dead because of him and there was no way he could fix that. But you don't have to read Paul's life very far to realize he was a cleric. He was a type A, task-oriented, get-her-done kind of person. He was that way before he became a Christ follower. When he decided that Christianity was a threat to Judaism, he went out everywhere. He traveled from town to town. He sought people out. He had them arrested. He left no stone unturned. He was a driver. And when he became a Christ follower, he brought that temperament into it. So now, keep in mind, this is a man who understands mercy. But we pick up his story in Acts chapter 15, and uh, he and Barnabas, his close friend, had been out traveling around sharing the gospel. And at one point, they decided to take a young guy named John Mark with them, kind of a, to mentor him. And uh, John Mark went on a trip with them that went through Pamphylia. Now, Pamphylia was a, was a swampy, low, mosquito-infested, miserable kind of area. And uh, John Mark didn't like the climate, and so he left. Paul and Barnabas went on. Well, now they're talking about another journey. And Barnabas says, you know, let's, uh, let's give John Mark another shot. And Paul said, 
not until something freezes over will we take that useless piece of flotsam of life who was nothing but an anvil around my ankle while we're trying to do the work of God. Not paraphrased. <laughs> but not inaccurate. Because the Bible says that Paul so objected to taking John Mark that he actually split up from his closest friend on the planet, Barnabas, over that issue. Some years later, Paul realized he was wrong, and he writes, Oh, by the way, send John Mark to me, because he'll be helpful to me. But it didn't take away the sting and the bitter loss of that moment. You see, one of the things about rookie mistakes is it simply takes our strengths and extends them past where it's healthy. And this temperament of Paul's that was God-given and healthy, when extended too far, became a liability. And so Paul made a rookie mistake. Let's look at another one. Personal history. Everybody here has personal history, and Peter in the New Testament had personal history. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, we pick up his story. Now, uh, there were two things about Paul, Peter's personal history. One, we don't know what went on in his family of origin, but somewhere he picked up a fear of people, and so Peter carried a fear of people. Secondly, his personal history involved being Jewish. Now, the Jewish people had been told from the beginning, that as far back as they could remember, that they were special, that the Messiah was going to come from them. So exclusive was their thinking that when Jerusalem had been sacked and they were trying to rebuild the temple and the walls, the Samaritans offered to come and help and the Jewish people said no because they didn't want any Samaritan touching any of the block that would build the walls or the temple. Now that's exclusive. Now in Acts chapter 10, God comes to Peter in a vision and he says to Peter, the gospel is going to be for the Gentiles too. Man. That would, have, that would have just like blown him out of the water. But somehow Peter was able to get himself around that. And the Bible tells us in chapter 11, he went back and he became the spokesman to other believers telling them that the gospel was going to be for the Gentiles. But we find out in Galatians chapter 2 that sometime right around the end of chapter 11 of Acts, well, he was fraternizing with the Gentiles when some of the Jews began to criticize him. Scripture says he pulled away from the Gentiles and actually influenced others to pull away from the Gentiles. Now, this is the guy that got the vision. He's the guy that told everybody that the gospel was for the Gentiles. But he didn't pay any attention to his personal history and how it impacted his decisions. And so grievous was that event that Paul showed up and in a public setting, the Bible says he withstood him to the face because of the way he was tainting the gospel. A rookie mistake. Not being aware of his personal history. 
look at another one. Your strengths and my strengths, for all the good things they bring, can become the basis of a rookie mistake. Let's pick up Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. The Bible tells us that God's view of Abraham is that if you're looking for a model of faith, he's the guy. God came to Abraham, so now Abraham, I know you've done really well where you're at, but I tell you what I want you to do. I want you to pack everything up. I want you to leave. And I want you to go to a place that you've never even seen and you don't even know anything about. But you'll just do it because I'm telling you to do it. The Bible says, Abraham said, it's good enough for me. And he packed up and he obeyed the Lord. That's the kind of uh, faith Abraham had. Well, the place he ended up in was Canaan. And then there was a famine in Canaan, so the Bible tells us that he took his family across into Egypt to endure the famine. And he got over to Egypt, and, and Abraham started thinking. He thought, Sarah, my wife, is a pretty woman. Somebody over here might decide to kill me in order to have Sarah. So he went to Sarah, and he said, Now, Sarah, in case anybody asks, let's just tell them you're my sister. Way to go, Abraham, a real stand-up guy. Well, the Pharaoh happened to meet Abraham, who was a prominent and wealthy man, and saw Sarah, and understanding it was his sister, decided he would make a good wife. Scripture says he took Sarah's wife. God brought adversity onto his family. He began to realize something was wrong. Somehow he figured out Sarah wasn't Abraham's sister, but his wife he chided Abraham for lying to him and sent him away. What happened to the faith? See, often in our strengths, here's what, here's what we do. We end up not giving attention to our strengths because it comes so easy. I was once in a hotel lobby visiting with Gordon MacDonald. One time Gordon MacDonald had pastored the largest evangelical church in New England. From there, he went on to become the president of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His book, Ordering Your Private World, is still in print and has been a significant book for a decade, a decade or more. He later wrote a book, Rebuilding Your Broken World, which is just searingly beautiful. A friend asked Gordon MacDonald one time, if Satan was going to take a run at you, how would he do it? And Gordon MacDonald says, I'm not really sure how he would do it, but I can tell you how he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it through my family because my family is so strong. Gordon's wife, Gail, wrote books on marriage, conducted seminars. So it shocked everyone when the word came out that Gordon MacDonald had had an affair. He resigned from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. To his great credit, he handled it both with, with uh, honesty and humility. But nevertheless, for a period of time, his life was devastated. Interestingly, in the one area where he thought he was the strongest. Number four. Success can become something that blinds us and causes rookie mistakes. Let's have a look at David. David was a king, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, 
Here's how it had been going for David. After some rough, a rough patch, he became the king of Israel. The Bible tells us he had been consolidating his power. He had been sending his armies out. He had been defeating everybody around him. And uh, these were good days. And then we read in chapter 11, And when the spring came, when kings go out to war, Scripture tells us David sent Joab and his army out, and he stayed in the palace. It was while he was in the palace that he looked across one night and saw Bathsheba bathing and asked his servants to bring her to him. And he laid with her, and she became pregnant, and he had her husband killed. You and I can read that story and think, how could he have missed the disaster he was stepping into? But success has a way of insulating us from potential danger. I was visiting with a friend of mine who was working with a branding consultant in Houston, Texas. He went out to eat with his branding consultant, and he said to the consultant, what surprises you in your work? And the consultant says, I'll tell you what surprises me, this thing. He says, I call it a code of competence. He says, I run into so many people that because they have succeeded once or in one area, they are virtually unteachable and actually think that their success in one area can easily just be rolled over then to any other area of their life. So they imagine, if I've succeeded here, well, I'll just apply these same principles to my wife or husband, to my children, to this area and that area. With very little discernment or evaluation on whether that transfer of success is actually working. I have, a, I have a little book I keep just to remind me of this. It's a book of quotes, and all the quotes by famous people are put in different categories, like arts and music and science and language and literature. And, and what it is is people who were a success in one area being quoted rather pontifically sometimes about some opinion in another area. And it's hilariously inept. I mean by that, that just because I'm succeeding here, I can't just automatically assume that my success here translates across the board. No man in Oregon who had succeeded in almost any business venture he tried and somebody quoted in the scripture once, there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And his response was, yes, and that's about all there is. Isn't that clever? But we know what he was saying. He was saying, I have succeeded in these areas. I need seek the counsel of no others. But I could sit his children down in this front row and they would tell you horrific stories of a father who alienated them all because of workaholism and a performance mentality that drove a wedge between them and him. Success. Number five, exhaustion. So this, this is, this, I like this one. Uh, 1 Kings 19. 
So here is Elijah. Now, if you took, apart from the work of Christ and the miracles of Christ in the Gospels, if you took that out, probably the handful of greatest miraculous events in all of the Bible would need to include Elijah's conquest on Mount Carmel over the prophets of Baal. Elijah had been, had been at war with Ahab and Jezebel and the evil of the nation. And he called them out, and they had this great battle on top of uh, Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal were invited to ask their God to send down fire to consume an offering. And when the fire didn't come, Elijah had such confidence that he even mocked and prodded and made fun of the prophets of Baal. I'd have been more tentative. But that's just me. And when it came his turn, he got before the Lord and he said, Lord, so that they'll know that I am your servant and that you are God, would you consume this offering? And before he asked for the offering to be consumed, he had it drenched in water. So confident was he of God's power. Now, when he was done with this great event, the Bible tells us as he was leaving, Jezebel had sent a messenger that said, in effect, listen, Jezebel's word to you is that irregardless of what's happened on this mountain, she'll have your head by the end of the day. Now, this guy had just witnessed one of the greatest demonstrations of power in all of the Bible, and now he's faced with an angry woman. All right, you're ahead of me. And, and here's what he says. The Bible says he ran for his life. <laughs> Some of you are taking too much upon yourselves. He ran for his life. When he got away, he told the Lord, I've had enough. And then he said, I'm the only one left. You might as well take my life. Now, what, what was going on here? He was exhausted. You don't have that kind of confrontation and demonstration of power. You see, you and I are like a bucket. And we're always pouring out. It's not surprising that one of the danger zones of marriage is the ninth to the twelfth year. When you have you got small children and everybody's exhausted and there's financial pressures and we're running every direction. So you're always pouring out of your bucket. And then the Bible says, because we're fallen, there's always leaks in our bucket. We all have leaks. Holes in the bucket. So we're pouring out on one end, we're leaking on the other. And if we don't pay attention to the draw, we reach a point of exhaustion that allows us to make mistakes Poor decisions we would have never made if our bucket was full. I notice in my cell phone that uh, if I plug it in here after a day's use, it's about 10 minutes and it's all perked up and ready to go. But if I get out of Portland where some of our kids live, that thing draws down so much faster and it takes way faster to charge back up. And there are certain places in our life where we need to pay attention to the draw on our lives. 
or we become susceptible to rookie mistakes. Number six, personal need. We pick up Eve's story in Genesis. Eve's story in Genesis chapter 3. Now, here's how it happens for almost all of us. God keeps asking us. People think that Christianity narrows us. It's just the opposite. Light always broadens our horizon. And so here is Eve. She's got a personal relationship with the creator of the world. And she's got an entire garden designed for Adam and her. And yet, somehow, as she gets into a discourse with Satan, her world gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower till the only thing she sees is a piece of fruit hanging on a branch. And once our vision gets that myopic, that narrow, we are at a great disadvantage because there's too much important data that's being excluded. And when that got to be her only focus, the Bible says she began to understand that that piece of fruit would be physically delicious, beautiful to look at, and would make her wise, she took of the fruit. Now, the fact is that none of those needs are unrighteous. And do you and I pay any attention to how full the glass is in regard to those needs and whether they're being met or not? So that perhaps I haven't been paying attention. And in an office setting, I simply reach across the desk with a piece of paper and my hand brushes the woman to whom I'm giving it. And since I have not been paying attention to the condition of my heart, that slight brush creates a smoldering wildfire that sweeps over me and catches me by surprise because I wasn't watching. And using different illustrations in different settings, we could evaluate how inattention to originally righteous needs brings us to a setting where rookie mistakes not only become possible, but often probable. All right. So what do I do? Because all those things are part of my life. Temperament, personal history, strength, success, exhaustion, personal need, they're all there. I'm not going to escape them or get away from them. What do I do? How can I reduce the potential for sabotage? I want you to think back through just like a snapshot of the six biblical stories I gave you. And I want to remind you that in every case, the decisions were made alone. You see, when I go into Macy's, 
with Marcy. <laughs> and she's going to buy something. She'll go look in a mirror. And it won't just be a frontal mirror. She'll look for something that's got sides to it. Because she wants that mirror to help her see what she could not otherwise see. Some of us wisely avoid such mirrors. I count myself without shame among them. But nevertheless, there it is. And in my life, if I don't have a place I can step that allows me to see what I cannot see on my own, I put my goals and my dreams at risk unnecessarily. Now, how would I do that? Number one, I can increase my network of eyes. That's an interesting thing about how Jesus built the 12 disciples, that group. It wasn't like he was just needing 12 people who were willing. Peter and Judas and Matthew would have never hung out together. No good Jew like Peter was going to hang around a tax collector like Matthew who was considered a traitor to their own nation, let alone someone who was a zealot and a political activist like Judas. It wasn't going to happen. And yet Jesus intentionally thrust his disciples into settings where he forced them to be with people who were going to give them other eyes was going to enlarge their vision, increase their perspective. Now, you may have buddies. I'm sure you do. Everybody here has friends. And usually we pick friends because we kind of connect. But if in your sphere you don't have anybody who doesn't think your thoughts in repetition... If you don't have people who don't just think your thoughts in repetition, you don't have mirrors that let you see more than straight ahead. Intentionally bring people into your life that see from other angles. Number two. And now these three things, these three, they're not actually three. They're like all interconnected. They're, they're like all one piece but we're just looking at, at them, uh, taking them apart a little bit. Number two, increase my frame of reference. Now, here's a frame of reference. I see something and I give it a meaning. The meaning I give it is because of a number of things, including personal history and other stuff. So that's the meaning you give the things you see. So they, uh, they did this little experiment. They brought in world-class chess players. World-class. And they gave all these world-class chess players about two seconds to look at a chessboard with the chess pieces in place from an actual game that was going on. Therefore, according to the rules of chess. Then they shut off the game and asked the chess players, these world-class players, to, to identify as many as they could of the location of the chess player pieces. And almost 100% of these world-class chess players could identify the location of every one of the pieces on the, t on the, on the chessboard. 
Now they took the same group and they showed them the same board except they moved the pieces around at random with no attention to the rules of chess. The same board, the same number of pieces, they're just all sitting all over the board. And they asked the same world-class chess players to identify the location of all these pieces and not one of them could identify them all accurately. No, I was that. Because in the first instance, they all have a, had a frame of reference that allowed them to identify what was going on. And when that frame of reference was removed, they were lost. Now, you and I can increase our frame of reference. Now, I'm going to give you just a brief little illustration of how this happened to me. It's an illustration of process, not result. You, you can go ahead and disagree with the result if you want. That's fine. But I grew up in North Dakota. And uh, if you grew up in the 60s and early 70s, there were, they were days of great turmoil in the country. Riots and a lot of stuff was going on. In my frame of reference, I had never been abused by someone in authority. I don't mean a teacher never yelled at me. I just mean that at any level of significance, no teacher or principal or policeman, I'd never been abused by someone in authority. And so as a teenager, as I watched the news and I watched Martin Luther King and the march of the black people in the South, I threw that into my frame of reference. And I believed in law and order and I thought this, this, this was just wrong. And somewhere along the line in my teen years, I read the autobiography of a man who wrote a book called Black Like Me. A man who was white and changed the pigmentation of his skin and moved around as he would normally move around and then recounted how he had been treated. And along with that, I read a novel by Harper Lee called To Kill a Mockingbird. And I took a step back and I realized that there were parts of our country where social scripts trumped righteous law. When I did that, I changed my frame of reference. And finally, increase your capacity to receive data. You can do that by increasing your personal experience, by increasing your social network. You know, when they used to make maps before the whole world had been discovered, when the map makers would get to the edge of what had been explored, they would put down these letters, Y-T-B-D, yet to be discovered. And for some of us, our frame of reference has been kept so small, there are huge tracks that the Holy Spirit wants us to investigate, but they're yet to be discovered because we have managed to keep things manageable. But the price of that is rookie mistakes. Well, I think that's what the Lord wants to say to us today. Would you put your things aside for just a minute and uh, bow your heads with me and
Could I ask you this question? How loyal do you want to be to the dreams and goals, the righteous dreams and goals of your life? Do you want to be loyal enough to those dreams and goals that you'll say to the Lord today, Lord, I realize today that all these people suffered loss because they went it alone. They made decisions alone. They isolated themselves. And I don't want to be that person. I don't want to wake up someday realizing I have experienced loss that I would not have had to experience if I wouldn't have invited you, if I would have just invited you and others into my life. And right where you're seated today, you can transact that with the Lord. You can say, Lord, I'm sorry for the inclination of my heart to isolate myself and make my own choices. Lord, I realize your participation in my life is to give me life and not death. Forgive me for my isolation. Come into my heart today, Lord, so that I can avoid some of the rookie mistakes I've heard about today. And I can see my dreams and goals become reality. If you're praying that prayer right now, and you're asking God to partner with you, and all of our heads are bowed and nobody's going to embarrass you, but it's such a big deal, would you just lift your hand up and say, I'm, I'm asking the Lord for that today come into my life to be my partner to preserve my dreams yes over here on the right yeah anybody else yes way in the back there I see it anybody else over here on the left anybody else and could I just say a word to some of us here who may have already made catastrophic mistakes that's why we have a redeemer to redeem means to restore what was lost the bible says I will restore the years the locusts have eaten and if you're here this morning and you think I wish I'd have heard this 20 years ago or ten years ago, or five years ago, it is not too late because we have a Redeemer who redeems what is lost. And right where you're seated, you can say, Lord, I need a Redeemer because I've already experienced catastrophe. And I'm sorry about that. And I ask you to come in and be part of my life and be the Redeemer you promised to be. In Jesus' name. You're praying that. If that's your heart this morning, we just wait a moment. We just lift your hand up and say, I'm, I'm asking the Lord to restore something and to redeem something. Yeah, over here in the middle on my left. Yeah. Father, thank you for your kindness to want to come alongside of us. Give us your grace. 
these who slipped their hands up this morning, I pray that you'll encourage them. You'll rush grace to them, your resource for every point of need as they make this new journey. You've heard the cry of their hearts, and you care. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.